Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Acts chapter 2, Acts 2 beginning in verse 40 and extending to verse 47. This is God's Word. And with many other words, he, that is Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to, in this moment, to invite Joe Hayworth to come forward for a brief report from our deacons. As many of you know, we've been situating ourselves in this text, Acts chapter 2, especially looking at verses 42 to 47, the last uh, six weeks together. We have one more week in this section before we um, go into the Advent season. And so as Joe and I were speaking, as well as the leadership this last week as we met together on Tuesday night, we wanted to make you aware of opportunities that you have to serve within our body that are directly related to the text that we're looking at this morning. So Joe, thanks for sharing with us on behalf of the deacons today. Just pray. Pray for the Lord to go ahead and provide in the way that we know that He will. And pray for the preaching of the Word, too, that He'll continue to move in our midst. Thank you. Father, we are in awe, and uh, we are very humbled to stand before Your people and to express your word and to know the great love you have for us. Uh, we're humbled by the fact that we, many of us, are with excess of food and with prosperous ease, as it's described here, and uh, we do not want to miss the opportunity to step forward and provide that, that need for those who do need it. Mm -hmm. uh, guide us in that, uh, just uh, work in our hearts. Uh, Continue to share, to, to bring your love to us. I, I thank you for the preaching of the word from, from Nate and Tony as they have moved us through this, this study. And I just pray you'll continue to, to be with them. Be with Nate today as he, as he shares with us from his heart and through the Holy Spirit that it will be your word and that we will respond to it as your people. Amen. I just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Joe. Hmm. 
You know, I happened to be reading on, over some old notes this week in my uh, journal, and I ran across this story. Some of you will know who Fred Craddock is. He's a, a minister of the gospel in the Disciples of Christ denomination. Some of you will be familiar with that denomination, very well known in actually our area, a branch off of what is known as the Church of Christ. And he was a pastor for a while in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Uh, actually, he was there as a pastor when Oak Ridge was expanding and growing as a community. And um, he was excited to see that as a young pastor. He believed that that would mean they would have many opportunities to reach out to the newcomers who were moving into the area. And it just so happens that someone bought some land right next to the church and put in a trailer park for many of those who were moving into the area. And he was excited about this and he was looking forward to who these new people who were coming to the area as Oak Ridge was growing, how the church would be able to reach out. And so he did, as what many pastors would do in a context like that, he took it to his elders and he said, we need to come up with a plan to reach out to these newcomers who are in our area. And the board of of elders, really the chairman of the elders said, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, these new people moving to our area might not fit very well in our community. And the pastor said, well, they live right though next to the church. I think we should at least at the, at the very minimum invite them to worship. And a little conversation ensued by the board of elders, and they never really came to a decision. They decided to table it for the next business meeting, and, and that month passed, and they got to the next business meeting, and before the, before the agenda could even be, be addressed, the chairman of the board of elders says, I move that to be a member of this church, you have to own your own property in this county where we live, you're in. Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I'll second that motion, said another voice that came in from the elder board, and the young pastor was quite discouraged. Fred speaks about his emotions in pretty raw fashion in the midst of that meeting. The motion passed almost unanimously, and soon thereafter, Fred decided it was time for him to leave that church. It was 20 years later that he and his wife were driving across the state of Tennessee on a kind of a whirlwind tour. They actually passed through Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He had not been there in all of that time, and he was married by this point. He was single when he had pastored there before, and his wife wanted to see the place that he had first pastored as he was out of seminary, so they began to search for that beautiful white clapboard church and Finally, they found the spot after some searching, and it was uh, just as he'd remembered it, just as beautiful, just as quaint, except there were a lot of new roads and a lot more people around. And the parking lot was a lot bigger than he recalled. And then he looked at the sign of the church, and it said, barbecue, all you can eat. He noticed there were motorcycles and motorhomes and cars and trucks of all kind that were sitting out front of the church. Apparently, it had been converted to a restaurant. Well, they pulled into the parking lot, walked inside, and you know what they saw? Well, all kinds of people. 
white and black and Hispanic and rich and poor and Southerners and Northerners and believe it or not, Republicans and Democrats were in there together. And Fred said to his wife, it's a good thing this place isn't a church. Some of these people wouldn't be allowed in it for if it were. You can hear the sarcasm in, in Fred's voice as he recollects having walked through that very difficult season in ministry and in some ways was horrified by the fact that there was a greater welcome at a restaurant than there was in the church. Now I dare say there's another Christian practice that has fallen on harder times than the practice of what we see in the passage before us in verses 45 and 46 of what is true Christian hospitality. What we might describe as the very welcome of God. Now, now when I say hospitality, I, I want to be sure that we have the right idea in mind. I'm not thinking dainty tea parties and cucumber sandwiches and couple of hours of local gossip. That's often what we mean by the language of hospitality. Instead, what we mean is what we see here in Acts chapter 2, which is the wholehearted practice of opening our lives up to the breadth and the depth that we have received of the welcome of God in the gospel and extending that welcome to others. That's what we mean when we use this language of hospitality. Now, for very good reasons, Christian believers for centuries have regarded the practice of hospitality as central to the Christian life. Now, the reason they did so was when they read the Scriptures and they saw and embraced the Gospel, they heard of an all-encompassing and inclusive invitation the one that I gave at the very opening of this service today, the come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That all means you, all of you. You're invited. You're welcome. The door is open. It's the welcome of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. They're welcome. They're invited in. The logic was so simple for the church here at Acts 2, and it was so simple in the early church. If the invitation of the gospel is as wide as the world, then those who've embraced that gospel must live in a manner that's consistent to that wideness. That was the logic. And that's what we see here in Acts 2.46. As they were daily attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, let me just remind you, if you're new with us this morning and you haven't been with us for the whole series, this group of people that's meeting together daily, attending the temple and being in each other's homes is a really motley crew. These are Egyptians and Medes and Romans and Parthians and many others. 
those who would not have spoken with one another, who would not have hung out with each other, who would have found themselves on different sides of the aisle, who would have located their homes on opposite sides of the tracks. These are the people who are getting together day in and day out, worshiping the same God, embracing the same gospel, and giving their lives away to one another. That's a beautiful expression. Pacing between the temple and their home. Or as I said in the title of this message, from God's house to our house and back again. That was the rhythm of the early church. They, they were touched with glad and generous hearts, receiving some of the most ordinary but most blessed gifts of bread and doing so with generosity, the kind that only the gospel can bring. Uh, hospitality is, is at the very heart of the redemption story of God. It's not just something that you and I ought to do, though we see it as a command in the scriptures. We've even read so already in Romans chapter 12. That we are to show hospitality. But it is actually the very heart of God for his people expressed in Jesus Christ. In fact, the word indicates that. Uh, the word hospitality is a combined general word for love of kinship or the kind of love that we would have for family. Combined with a word that means stranger. It means, in other words, to make a stranger like one of the family. To make one who's on the outside one to feel like they're one on the inside. To treat them like they're one of your own. It's this in practice that's intended to cut against our loneliness. Our sense of estrangement. Our sense of being outsiders. And that's why within the word hospitality, we see the word hospital. This is a place that you go when you're sick, right? When you need healing, when you need mending. And hospitality is a practice that's meant to draw us in out of our brokenness. And for a little while, as one writer said, give us the rest that we need to be able to collect ourselves. You know what it's like to be able to be invited into someone's home and to feel Welcome. To be there as one of their own. And to relax into the comfort of that moment so much that your heart opens up with gladness. That you can share anything that's on your heart. That you know that they're giving themselves to you. And they're inviting you to give yourself to them. Everybody in this room, to more or less degree, fights this feeling of estrangement of being on the outside, of being cut off, of being alienated, of feeling like a stranger. Even some of us in this room right now don't feel at home. And the strange thing is, we don't feel at home, even at home. It's like we're out of place. It's something that's disjointed. And that the disjointedness isn't all about geographical location or making something feel cozy. It's about something that's pretty deep in our hearts. That there's a lostness and an estrangement that runs much deeper than simply an external welcome. We need our hearts to embrace the internal call of the gospel in Christ at a deep come unto me level. 
all of you who are weary. You see, that's really the story of the Scriptures, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, Genesis chapter 3 begins that picture of estrangement. Where Adam and Eve realized after eating of the forbidden fruit that they were unclad and full of shame. And they did their very best to cobble together a few fig leaves to make themselves presentable. And when God came walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, they dodged around a few trees, hoping to escape his gaze. What are they displaying for us but a sense of lostness, a sense of estrangement, a sense of being on the outside, no longer feeling welcome, no longer feeling apart. And the realization is, as the curses come down in Genesis chapter 3, what they feel is actually an indication of the reality that's true. They are no longer welcome in the presence of God. We're told that God sends them out east of Eden and he puts two cherubim at the gate of Eden with flaming swords so as to be sure that they're not let back in. And thus begins the journey of being a stranger to God and a stranger even to one another in the world. There's glimmers of hope. It's all over the scripture. It begins in some profound way in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham, doesn't it? When God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, I've got a plan. I want to make of you a great nation. And you know what? I want to give you a promised land. I want you to think when you hear that, I want to give you a community and a family and a place that's going to look a little bit like Eden. Isn't that how the land of Canaan is described? A place that is flowing with milk and with honey. A place where, you know, the grapes were the size of watermelons. That we couldn't even imagine the abundance and the fruitfulness that was there. Something Edenic is in the description of the land of Canaan. And God says, I'm trying to get you back to where it is that you were, that now it is that you've lost. And so he says to Abraham, listen, for that to happen, though, you're going to have to leave the place that you call home, Ur of the Chaldeans, because let me tell you, it's not home. It doesn't have the hospitality, the healing power to be able to do for you what your soul really longs. So you've got to leave your home. You've got to leave your people because I've got something bigger in store, something better in store. And so when he does, he takes off to a place that God will show him, off to this mystery land that is the promised land. And well, the journey's not quite what Abraham bargained for. Do you remember that? He's supposed to get a son and well, he's old. And so he takes matters into his own hands, but that's not the son that God had in mind. And then finally, Isaac is born, but it becomes really clear that he doesn't have much of a nation by the end of his life. And the strangeness of being a pilgrim in a foreign land is passed down, not merely to Abraham, but now to Isaac. And if you read through the book of Genesis, you realize that it moves from Isaac to Jacob and then from Jacob to Joseph. And guess what? We're at the end of Genesis. Still no land. But by the opening of Exodus, we have a people. In fact, what is called an exceedingly great nation at the very opening of the book of Exodus. But it's not really what anybody would have expected. These are people who are now under the thumb of a pharaoh who no longer remembers Joseph. 
And he is suppressing the people of God. They are a great nation, but they are not at home. There's no hospitality. Instead, there's captivity. They are reminded each and every day that they are not where it is that they ought to be, and they're not even where God said they promised that they would be. But of course, God's not forgotten them. He gives to them Moses, right? Uh, the redeemer of God's people who through great signs and wonders leads the people of God out of Israel and he leads them into a new twist in this pilgrim being a stranger in the land journey. What's often known as a wilderness wandering. Oh yeah, you remember that, right? Now, Moses led the people of God all the way up to the promised land. You remember that they sent the spies into the promised land and they came back with amazing reports of how amazing it is. It is really a lot like the garden of God from long ago and he's given it to us. But these Canaanites, they are huge. And there's no way that we can take them. I know God said he would give the land to us. But listen, has he seen their armaments? In sight of them, we are like grasshoppers in the land. Thanks, God, but no thanks. And back out into the wilderness. For another twist in the wilderness, wondering for 40 years as an entire generation dies off, and the people of God have to learn a whole lot of lessons in that time. Uh, really, a lot of lessons about the hospitality of God. You see, when they were in the wilderness, God began to teach them that home is really not in the land of Canaan, but that home and hospitality is where God is. You see, when they were in the wilderness, God was the one who rained manna down from heaven and gave them more quail than they even knew how to eat. It was God who, when they were thirsty, brought forth a well from a rock. And it was God who sheltered them from the hot sun in the day. And it was God who led them by the pillar of cloud and fire in the day and night. And it was God who gave them the clothes and the shoes that were told for 40 years as they wandered, never wore out. That's a miracle. It was God, in other words, who was always playing the host to the people of Israel. The one who was saying to them, do you know what? You're home when you're with me. I, I lay a table in the middle of the wilderness when your enemies attack you, I'm your shield. When you need to be clothed, I'm the one who gives you animal scans. I'm the one who continues to offer you the redemptive hospitality that your heart and soul really need. I'm the home and the hospitality you're looking for. Now, when the people of God finally did enter the, the land of Canaan, it, one of the interesting things that happened is you think they'd be home, but they're not. In fact, God reminds them that they're not. In a really interesting passage that's often neglected in our Bible reading because it's buried in that thrilling book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 25, 
A passage where God is giving instructions to the people of Israel about buying and selling land. He says this, just to remind them of where they stand. He says, the land, speaking of the land of Canaan, shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. Oh. So even the promised land is not theirs. It's God's. And this is what he says about them in the land. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. You know, that's a really remarkable statement. God in Leviticus 25 is saying that your status as sojourner and stranger is not going to change when you enter into the promised land. And in fact, I, the sojourning God, is going to go with you into that land. And I'll be the stranger there with you. You know, one of the things that makes the Scripture so remarkable is that the beauty of redemptive themes are played out page after page after page and they unfold with remarkable twist. Who would have thought that God would be a stranger in His own world that He made? But indeed, that's exactly what we find when we turn to the New Testament, don't we? God who becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is the most significant stranger, we might say the perfect stranger of all who walks among us, one who is fit for the glories of heaven, but one who was actually coming to his own people, but his own people knew him not, according to John 1.11. I want you to hear what John's saying there. Jesus, the Son of God, dressed in the disguise of man, came to his people who were looking to welcome him, and they slammed the door in his face. It's a picture of Jesus' whole life, of the infant that was born in a little outhouse of an inn, vulnerable and weak as a little baby. And a child who grew up not to know security and safety and welcome, but become a refugee. Because Herod in Egypt was after his head and he had to flee for safety and security, much like we're seeing in the news today of Syrians pouring into Greece and many other places because of the attacks. That was Jesus. And a, and a man who says during the course of his ministry that he has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Only to end his life in the most rejected fashion possible, a despised convict crucified on a cross. It's remarkable that the God who is the welcome of his people from the beginning pages of the Old Testament to the end, when that God shows up on the scene, 
among the people that he's come to redeem, they know him not. They reject him. They don't want anything to do with them. But not surprisingly, this doesn't seem to deter him. In fact, though Jesus is the perfect stranger who's rejected among us, he becomes for us the perfect host. When you look at the New Testament, you begin to see that this Jesus models the glad and glad generosity of God throughout the Old Testament. Whether it's turning water into wine to keep the party going in Cana, or whether it's to feed the 5,000 who are hungry in the wilderness, this Jesus becomes, through his healings and through his teachings, the consummate host, and he particularly focused upon those who are on the margin of society, the prostitutes the tax collectors, and other such sinners, those who never received welcome. Because it wasn't the well that he came for. You remember, he told us this. It's not the well who need a physician, Jesus said. It's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is why, undoubtedly, that Jesus uses in his teaching a meal as the way that he presents the gospel most consistently. I mean, think about it in his parable in Luke chapter 14. You remember he speaks of a man who gave a great banquet. And his invitations go out to all of his friends everywhere. But all of his friends seem to have more important things to do. You know, some of them have bought a land. And they've got to go to it and take care of it. And some have family. And they prize that over the invitation. And we're told that the master in the parable becomes angry. And he decides to send his invitation, literally in the Greek, to the streets. Now, who lives on the streets? Well, those who have no welcome. Those same prostitutes and tax collectors and and quote-unquote sinners, as the Pharisees like to describe, those or who the invitation went out to. And interestingly, the banquet hall is filled, we're told at the end of Luke 14, with the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. They accepted the invitation of the master. And Jesus is saying, this is the invitation of the gospel that I've come to bring. That my own people and those who perceive themselves as well and righteous are the ones who never make it into the banquet hall. But those who are clearly not welcome are those are the ones in whom my door is swung open for. And thus it's no surprise that we have every single worship service with this same kind of picturesque meal. That Jesus in a breathtaking act of hospitality dons himself with a towel and pulls to himself a basin with water and he washes his disciples' feet and act of the humblest hospitality. And if that weren't enough, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them and he pours the wine and they drink of it. And he says, I'm not just doing acts of hospitality for you. My very body is your hospital. I will become the place of which you will find healing. And so at the end of the Gospel of Luke in Luke 24, as Jesus walks along the road to Emmaus with those disciples who were disheartened, do you remember them? 
Well, Jesus, after he unfolded the scriptures to them, was going to walk a little bit further, but you know what they did? They said, no, 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 don't go further, come and stay with us. They welcomed him in. And Jesus accepted their hospitality, very similar to what we read in Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will answer the door, I will come in and I will sup and I will dine with him. Jesus dines with those disciples. And you remember what happened. Though they were kept from seeing who he is, we're told that as he broke the bread and he gave it to them, their eyes were opened And they recognized him. You see, from the very beginning of the scripture to the very end of the scripture, this theme of hospitality is at the very core of what redemption is all about. And it just so happens that the early church saw that. And the early church practiced it because they knew how deeply they had been welcomed in Jesus. Paul says... In Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I don't think we'll ever get to the end of those few words. How has Christ welcomed you? Well, graciously. Sacrificially. Eternally. He has given all of himself to bring you in. And what's remarkable is he had to become a stranger to do this. You see, that's what this gospel is all about. Jesus, who is the Son of God, a part of the most inclusive community that there is. It's called the Trinity. There's three persons in it. It's one God. Nobody else gets in. Except for the fact that Jesus, in a way of speaking, was cut off for a little while. And in his being cut off from the communion that he shared with his Father and the Spirit from all eternity, when the Father turned his back on him on the cross, the prayer that he had prayed in John 17 was beginning to become true. Father, I ask you to make them one with us even as we are one. You see what he's praying there? He's saying, I ask you to invite them into the community that we share. And the Father says, Jesus, for that to happen, you've got to be excused from our community. Because someone has to pay for the separation, the alienation, and the isolation of sin. That is a holy affront to our righteousness. We cannot fellowship with sin. We cannot abide with wickedness and iniquity. We need someone to clean the slate And the Son of God said, I love them. The Father says, I love them with you. And the Spirit says, I'll take that gospel and apply it to them. And we will be one. 
This is God's call upon our lives. To experience this kind of oneness and then to share it. To when we stare in each other's eyes, there's something of the welcome of Christ in it. When we stick out our hand and shake each other's hands and learn each other's names and share each other's dreams and stories and learn of each other's tragedies, that we're welcoming each other into our lives in the way that Christ has welcomed us into his. And thus it wouldn't be astonishing to read verse 46. And day by day they attended the temple together, breaking bread in each other's homes. They received their bread with glad and generous hearts. They heard of the gospel as they went to the temple and saw it portrayed in the practices of faith. And then they went and put it into practice as they broke bread around the home. And they said, we want to share Christ together. Now, if we want to share Christ together, it's going to take a little effort, isn't it? Actually, it's going to take several things. And I want to call you to these things today. Because I think Christ calls us to these things as he models the gospel for us. Four quick things as we close. The first thing it's going to require of us is to make room in our hearts for each other. We've got to make room in our hearts for each other. Christine Pohl, in her wonderful book, by that title, Making Room, says this, Whether or not we can always find room in our houses, welcome really begins with dispositions that are characterized by love and generosity. Hearts are enlarged when we learn to pray that God would give us the eyes to see the opportunities around us and by willingness to put ourselves in the places where we will encounter people who need welcome. There are two things that Christine notes in this making room in her heart. She says, first, we've got to begin to pray. Right now, so many of us in our hearts hold on to ourselves and thus don't have enough room to welcome somebody else in. In the gospel, we're called to release ourselves, to release ourselves into God, For he is the one who carries us and promises that he will do so all the way home. You can't hold on to yourself and hold on to others. You've got to learn to make room in your heart for one another. And that begins by prayer. And it continues by seeking out the places where loneliness and estrangement and difficulty of those who need welcome are found. Like rooms like this. Like in home fellowship groups like in mission opportunities. Because right now the ache of estrangement is in many hearts in this room and some of us have been called to make room in our hearts to meet that ache. But it continues in this. Secondly, to make room in our homes. We make room in our hearts, but we've got to make room in our homes. A characteristic of a hospitable place was described by one person recently as we were talking, is a place where someone can rest and be restored to themselves. A place where someone can rest and be restored to themselves. To find the comfort by which real rehabilitation and restoration happens. That's really different than entertaining, which is wearying. Entertainment 
It is when we are trying to put on a performance rather than welcome somebody in. Entertainment is when we're more concerned about ourselves than we are about the people coming. What will they think of our home? What will they think of our food? Will they like us? Well, I can almost guarantee you if your mind is occupied with those things, probably not. But if our mind and hearts are occupied with them, and we let our environs be dictated by the welcome that we want them to receive, then all of a sudden, hospitality begins to happen. And people feel at home with us. John Chrysostom put it this way, Make for yourself a guest chamber and let it be simple. Set up a bed there, a table, and a candlestick. Have a room for anyone in need. We've got to make room in our hearts. We've got to make room in our homes. But thirdly, we've got to make room in our schedules. This might be the hardest thing of all. I love what Edith Schaefer says in her wonderful book, Labrie. She says, the most precious thing a human being has to give is his time. The fact of the matter is that hospitality is time-consuming. You've got to plan for it. You've got to carve it out. It's going to take effort. It's going to be difficult. And we're just too busy for that. We've got a lot of big deals going on. And what this passage teaches us is that maybe the things that we're prizing most importantly are not the things that God is prizing most importantly. That that hospitality causes us to reprioritize our schedules and to carve out space for time with each other. Giving a person time requires that we stop to focus on them. It means we're unhurried. It means we're unrushed. You know the feeling of talking to someone who is clearly ready to get away from you. That's not welcome. It's the slow time with the open heart where people are not a project to be managed or an interruption to be skirted around. They are people to be loved and to be cared for. And then finally, we've got to learn to make room in our budgets because hospitality is going to be costly. Anyone who's practiced true Christian hospitality knows that financial investment will be part of the deal. Making a meal is costly. And making it for more people is more costly. But one of the things that I'm afraid that many of us have stumbled on is we've worried about having the perfect food. The best food. The tastiest of food. Rather than the food that will welcome the most. The food that we can prepare simply, wholesomely, but will make it easy to receive people on short notice and often. Making room in our budgets is to say, I want to provide for what it is that I can afford. And I'll do it by sacrifice. Because it's more important to connect with the other than it is to hold on to a little more cash. The Benedictine rule, which some of you know, 
Benedictine monks are known for their practice of hospitality. At the head of their rule, they say this, let all who arrive as guests be received as Christ. Because it might be him. In fact, it is. Jesus tells us that. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And the king will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you've done it unto me. Friends, Christ is with us. He is in the faces of the people around you and in the needs in this room. He is hungry. He is thirsty. He's in need of clothes. He's in need of welcome. Will you make room for Christ among us? Father in heaven, we ask you, in the way that you have made room for us, may we, in the spirit of the gospel, make room for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.